the gospel. It's a story of how God created us to be in a relationship with himself. But time and time again, we stubbornly go on our own way. More importantly, it's a story of how God doesn't give up. He loves us so much that when we couldn't save ourselves, he sent his son to save us. He sent Jesus. How we come to know Jesus is the most important story in our lives. Not only is it the story that saved us, but it is also a story that has the power to help others. We call those stories testimonies because they tell the truth of who Jesus is. They testify about what he has done for us. And by sharing our story, we reveal his goodness and his grace to others. There is power in telling your story of how Jesus changed your life. And I believe that story can change the life of people around me. So I will tell the story of who I was and who I am becoming in Jesus. I will tell the story of what he has done in and through me. I will tell the story of how Jesus saved my life. I will testify. Good morning, Riv West Siders. It's good to see everybody. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors. I don't get out in the West Side very often, so I am very excited to be here and to spend the next 35 minutes with you. And as we continue the Testify series, today we're going to look at the book of Ruth. And I would love to spend the next four weeks going through the book of Ruth because it is this amazing book. And the thing I love about it is, as an Old Testament book, the gospel is saturated through these 81 verses of this very powerful story. And theologians and Bible scholars would say there's anywhere between five and ten major themes that flow out of the book of Ruth. And obviously we're not going to cover all of those. But one is that God's plan for redemption includes Gentiles and Jews, something that is part of the ongoing story that we see going into the New Testament. Secondly, and very importantly, women are co-heirs with men in the gospel and in God's kingdom. And given the long history of the church, the abuse of power, and the disproportionate impact that has had on women, this is a key story. Third, God's sovereign goodness for marginalized people is monumental in his plan to accomplish his will. God uses broken people. God uses people in the margins. The genealogy of both David and Jesus is traced back to Jacob through this tiny book in the middle of the Old Testament. Boaz, who we're going to meet here in a few minutes, as a type of Christ becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer, which has messianic messages as well. But really for today, the main theme, the main storyline I want you to get more than anything else is the power of love and loyalty in the midst of pain. And sometimes we miss that because we miss context. And anytime we pick up the Bible, it's really important that we get what's going on and understanding the context. But I think that's critical when we read Ruth. To understand the book of Ruth, we need to grasp the political, the religious, the historical, the cultural context of what is going on. And I have to confess, when I read Ruth in my 20s and 30s, I got most of it wrong. Because I read it through a cultural lens of Mark Brett and my life and what's going on around me. And a casual reading of Ruth, it's easy to have Ruth become like a Hallmark movie, right? 
This poor widowed woman follows her mother along across the barren land, destitute and without hope, and through random chance while toiling and destitute in the fields. She's working diligently for survival. And then suddenly her eyes meet this suave, handsome, eligible bachelor and romance soon blossoms. And he swoops in and saves Ruth and her family. That is not the story of Ruth. And if that's your lens, I'm going to challenge you to zoom out and take a new perspective this morning. So let's jump right into the book of Ruth here, shall we? Ruth 1, verse 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Lemelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Lemelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilean died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. So let's just take a couple minutes and get backdrop here. Time. So the time period is during the book of Judges. More specifically, the time of Judge Jair in in Judges chapter 10, which is about 1126 B.C. This was a spiritually destitute time for the nation of Israel. It was a long season of them falling away from God, being warned to repent, and God casting judgment in the form of military invasions, government collapse, foreign oppressors, and famine. The book of Judges ends with this famous verse, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were morally bankrupt in this season. And when we hear the word famine, we cannot really comprehend the impact that it had on individuals, families, and communities. For us, it's kind of like when we go into the kitchen to grab a snack at night, and you're like, there's nothing to eat in here. And the refrigerator is like three-fourths of the way full, but there's nothing you want. But of famine back then, people were starving. Israel was an agricultural country. It was a battle for survival. We read briefly about the story of Joseph last week about the impact on on a community with famine. And we're introduced into a couple characters here. First, where the story starts, Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. A man, Lemelach, whose name means my God is king, marries Naomi, whose name means pleasant or sweet. So the storyline kind of starts really positive. A place of plenty, this man whose name is my God is king, marries Naomi, and then there's a famine and everything changes. It gets so bad, they got to go to Moab, which we'll look at here in a minute. And they have two sons, Malon and Chilion, whose names mean sick and weak. Now, if you are pregnant or getting ready to have kids, those are not names I encourage you to have for your kids. But it tells the story of what's going on here. And then they move to Moab, which is now like moving from Grand Ledge to East Lansing. It's 70 miles down the road. And oh, by the way, Moab is the perennial enemy of Israel. The Moabites came from an incestuous relationship between Lot, the nephew of Abraham, and his daughter. And the Moabites oppressed Israel for 18 years. We read about this in Judges 3. They worshiped this idol god called Chemosh. 
And part of the worship of this idol demanded human sacrifices and other detestable practices. Now, Lemelech dies before finding wives for his two sons. And in the culture of that time, the father would find and negotiate brides from families of good standing in the community. Because that didn't happen, these two women were probably from lower-tier families in Moab. His sons marry Ruth and Orpah, both Moabites, and then they live there for about 10 years, and then they both die. So let's keep reading the story here. Verse 6. She and her daughter-in-laws set out to return to, from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness to you as if you shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, We insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who become your husband? They wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. So at this point in the story, we are left with Ruth and Naomi, two women with everything, and I mean everything stacked against them. They're women. Their status and survival depends on men during this highly, highly patriarchal culture. Women had no standing. Two, they are widowed. The Hebrew word for widow is almanah, which comes from the root alam, which means unable to speak or silent one. They had no voice in society. This puts them at extreme risk for degradation, discrimination, abuse, and danger. Third, they're barren. Naomi's sons, like all women back then, were her future and a mother's glory. And that is now gone forever. Ruth was barren in the prime of her youth, making her less desirable for a future husband and for future security. And lastly, they come from Moab. Ruth is a foreigner in a land not liked by Israel. And there's one more thing we don't see in the the text that I want to spend a minute about. That's their state of being. They were here for 10 years And during this time, they endured extreme trauma and distress. Zoom back to today. Do you know what the five most stressful life events are in our culture? Think about it. The five most stressful events. See if you can come up with one or two in your own mind. Number one, death of a loved one. For Naomi, she's three three for three. Number two, loss of a spouse. Divorce or death. Number three, moving. How about moving to a foreign country? Four, illness or injury. Famine and starvation would fall in that category. And last, number five, job or economic loss. They've hit the trauma lottery, five for five. Realistically, in this culture, when Naomi's two sons died and were buried, so did she. She's like the female version of Job. You guys remember the story of Job? He lost his fortune. He lost all his kids. He had horrible illness. His friends questioned his character. 
But he had a few more things in his favor than Naomi did. He still had a spouse. Now, you could argue about some of the choices she made and what she encouraged Job to do. He was male. He still had status and standing in his community. He had future economic options. And he was not coming from a country despised by his own people. On balance, if I had to be Naomi or Job, I'd be Job. If a modern psychiatrist met with either Naomi or Ruth, they would assess that they most likely had high levels of depression, probably PTSD, and anxiety. Now, some of us in the room can relate to this in our own lives. Things haven't worked out the way we've planned. We've experienced hurt, wounds, pains, and maybe one or more of those stressors that we just talked about. The thing about prolonged pain and loss It narrows our vision and our hope. We can't see a path forward. It's work just to get out of bed and do the next thing, let alone think about what's going to happen a year from now or two years from now. And we can be stuck in that position for the rest of our life unless something intervenes. And in Naomi's case, love intervenes. Let's keep reading in verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me, and so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Somewhere along the way, Ruth came to believe and trust in the God of the Israelites, converted to Judaism. Your God will be my God, she says. Her choice to love, serve, and follow Naomi flowed from this trusting God, a God she did not know growing up. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. She's like, okay, I guess we're going. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? This journey alone required faith. Two vulnerable women traveling across two countries, covering 70 miles, navigating hills anywhere from two to 4,000 feet elevation through the desert, across the Jordan River with no protection. Bethlehem at this time was a town of between 300 and 800 people. Everybody knows everybody. So they show up and the women are exclaiming, can this be Naomi? And there's two ways to interpret that. One is, wow, they're really excited to see her. And then the other one is, is that Naomi? There's a chance they didn't recognize her. It's like that distant relative you see at a family wedding you haven't seen like in 20 years. It's like, is that Aunt Susie? Oh my gosh, she got old. What happened to Aunt Susie? Have you ever been to a wedding and you like see a distant relative and you're like, I barely recognized him. I think that's what's happening here. It's been over a decade since Naomi has been in Bethlehem. And the level of trauma she has been through has aged her. I was reading an article by an internal medicine physician this week. He was talking about those five stressors. And in his research, anyone who has three of those stressors in under a five-year period can age 20 to 30 years. So when they're like, can this be Naomi? That's what I think is going on here. Verse 20. 
Don't call me Naomi. Remember what Naomi meant? Sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. Can we all agree that her life is truly bitter? Her life is in ruins and her soul is in despair. And one of the things I love about this book is that it doesn't shy away from pain and suffering. You and I, we can be honest with ourselves and with God in times of prolonged pain and suffering and what feels like God's apparent silence. She's like, God has opposed me. God has afflicted me. She's being raw and real with her emotions. 20 to 25% of the Psalms are these laments, these crying out to God in our pain. David writes in Psalm 13, he says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? You can feel the pain and the anxiety. How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer me, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. Naomi and Ruth's reality is ours. We're not master of our own destinies. Few of us, if any, our lives are exactly the way we had planned and hoped. Yet, the outcome is always, always in God's hands. Part of our journey will include affliction, pain, and uncertainty. On balance, in this life, the blessings don't always equal the burdens. And as we testify to the world around us, our story and what Jesus has done for us, we cannot and should not sidestep the backstory of our pain and suffering, and we should also be prepared to lean into others. So let's consider, uh, continue, we're going to go into chapter 2. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Lemelach's family. His name was Boaz. Another misunderstanding I want to clear up here is, the statement, a prominent man of noble character and the cultural norms of that day could be translated, married, established with lots of kids. We don't know for sure, but in my research, in the culture of this day, there's a higher probability that Boaz had multiple wives and a boatload of kids than that he was single. Just as barrenness brought shame to a woman in that culture, an older man not married would bring shame to his family. So I don't want to like make it an absolute, but it's highly probable that he was married. Let's keep reading. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I have found favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvester. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Lemelech's family. Two words there, just happened. In the midst of all this pain, all this suffering, God shows up in a very routine, just kind of a day, and he shows up in a way that will change the trajectory of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz's life. And oh, by the way, keeps the the trajectory of when and who the Messiah is going to come from. God is sovereign. 
Verse 4. Later when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, Whose young woman is this? The servant answered, She is the young Moabite woman who returned from Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, Will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she's rested a little in the shelter. Now, it's easy to miss this request of Ruth is completely out of the ordinary, risky, and very courageous. Back then, they didn't have a government welfare system or food stamps or Medicaid. God's welfare system we find in Leviticus 19, and it says this, when you reap the harvests of your land, you're not to reap to the very edge of the field. Do not gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. And that's how they, they would survive. And so these harvesters were the men with these big sickles. And they would come through for the wheat and the barley. And they would cut down the stalks. And then behind them were the women servants who would grab these bundles, tie them up, stand them up so they would dry. And then later on they would come and grab them. And then behind the women servants were the gleaners. These were the orphans, the widows, the poor. And they would just pick up what was missed. That was God's plan to take care of the poor and the marginalized. What Ruth is asking for is she wants to be put between the harvesters and the female servants so she can get as much as possible. Now, gleaners, remember, famine, starvation. These people are trying to gather enough food to survive. And so they would compete for for food and sometimes with sharp elbows. These were not people that wanted to be working next to each other. They're trying to grab enough food to survive. In some fields, the workers would sexually victimize the gleaners. Not all landowners left a lot of food. They were not all as generous as Boaz. Robert Hubbard, a scholar in the book of Ruth, writes this. Given the meager fare the gleaners gathered, one suspects a concern to increase her chances of gleaning enough to provide for Naomi. Ruth showed herself to be anything but a modest, self-effacing foreigner. She emerges as courageous, if not slightly brash. Aware of the possible rejection and ostracism, she took a sizable risk in order to benefit her mother-in-law. Let's keep reading here in Ruth 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting in. And follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to them, Why have I found favor with you that you should notice me, though I am a foreigner? So her circumstances are starting to change. And Boaz is pulling Ruth into the circle of his household, this most favored gleaner status. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz told her, Come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters, and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his men, let her even gather grain among the bundles, and don't humiliate her. Pull out some of the stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. He is making sure his workers are now responsible for Ruth's welfare, safety, and that she doesn't go home empty-handed. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley, 
26 quarts of barley is about 29 pounds. A typical male worker's take-home pay in this time was about one to two pounds. So she's bringing home about 15 times what the male servants were making. Her mother-in-law said to her as she brought home the goods, Where did you gather barley today and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, The name of the man I work with today is Boaz. Naomi's spirits are starting to lift a little bit here. Can you, can you just get a sense of that? May the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, The man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Another quick time check here for context. Chapter 2 of Ruth starts with the harvest. And just as we can miss context, sometimes we can miss how long an event's taking place. Ruth 2 ends with the harvest complete. And if it was the barley and wheat harvest, as most people think it was, that would take two to four months. It's easy to read this and think, yeah, Ruth's out there for a couple days or a week and she's working really hard. No, she's getting up day after day from sunup to sundown for months to harvest. Her devotion to Naomi took perseverance, grit, and determination. Let's move on to chapter 3. Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you'll be taken care of? Now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and cover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. Okay, this is one of the most bizarre, confusing chapters in the Old Testament. So what's going on here? Was Naomi serving up Ruth on a platter for Boaz to have sex with her that night? Is Ruth being forward and doing something sexually inappropriate? Do the, are these women scheming and conjoling and flirting to force this guy's hand? Is this an ambush in his moment of weakness? It's late, he's had a few drinks, and it's the classic gold digger strategy. The answer to those four questions are no, 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 and no. This is not an Old Testament version of desperate Jewish housewives. Boaz, remember, Boaz is likely a generation older, maybe with an established family or families. For him to pursue Ruth, a barren widow from a despised foreign country, would have been a stretch. Likewise, in this culture, who else could initiate betrothment? Usually the father of the woman. He's gone. Since that's not possible, and because Naomi has oversight for Ruth, She has no bargaining power, no dowry, limited social connections, no political clout, but she's got a plan. She sees Boaz as a godly, righteous man and a great choice for Ruth. She knows that he's a relative to her dead husband, and Ruth knows him. Because there's no male family go-between, she's figured out the perfect time and place for a private conversation between Boaz and Ruth that won't impugn either of their reputations if it fails. And then she tells Ruth, wear your best clothes. And again, 
People get this interpreted wrong. She's not telling her to put on sexy lingerie. She's not telling her to put on a wedding dress, as I read in one article. Most of the scholars would basically say what this statement means in that time and place is present yourself no longer as a widow in mourning, but as someone who is open to marriage possibilities. And then she says, go and uncover his feet, and he'll do the rest. In other words, Ruth, all you need to do is get to this part of the plan, and Boaz will know what to do next. The other thing that we need to understand here is ancient family laws. In this time and place, there were two key issues in every Israelite family. Survival of the family name, keeping of the family land. Lemelak ran into trouble with both. Famine drove him off his land, and the death of him and his sons threatened his family with extinction. Mosaic law had provisions for both. Very, very briefly here, because I know we're running out of time, was this thing called the Leverit law. When a man dies without an heir, his brother was required to marry the widow and have a child who would carry forward the name and the line of the deceased. The widow and her descendants would be sheltered and secure for their lifetime. The kinsman redeemer law was when a man fell on hard times and was forced to sell his land, his nearest relative was called to step in, purchase the land, and keep it in the family line. Both of these laws required sacrifice to fulfill them, and a man was taking on financial risk if he didn't do that. So let's keep reading here. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went down to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she secretly uncovered his feet. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. So up to this point, she's following the plan. And then something happens here. She says, take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. You're like, whoa, hold on. Did did she not understand Naomi? She's going completely off script here. She's calling a major audible. In the context of those laws, it makes a lot of sense. With her statement, take me under your wing, you're a family redeemer. She's appealing to both the Leverit law and the kinsman redeemer law. She is proposing to Boaz And by putting marriage and land together, she is stating her intention to bear a child, to inherit the lamb, she's asking Boaz to redeem. This is a major leap of faith and boldness for Ruth. She is stating her intention for marriage and potential child rearing, even though she was barren in her previous marriage. Not only is she risking rejection, she's reopening one of the most painful wounds of her life by trying once more to have a child. She's risking public embarrassment and humiliation if this goes bad and the whole town finds out about it. Remember, small town, lots of gossip. She's putting her future in jeopardy to take care of Naomi. Verse 10. So Boaz said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Don't be afraid. I will do for you whatever you say since all the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now go and lie down till morning. Boaz is all in on this plan. Ruth goes back home in the morning, tells Naomi what happened. 
Now it's Boaz's turn to step up in chapter 4. Boaz went to the gate of the town, sat down there. Soon the family redeemer, Boaz had spoken about, came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went down and they sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders. So he's counting it like a, a town council meeting here. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Lemelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. But if you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone there to redeem it. I am next after you. And the guy's like, sure, I'll take it. And then Boaz says, oh, by the way, when you do that, you also get Ruth, and you're under this obligation to perpetuate that family line, which requires a financial risk. And he's like, nope, can't do that. So the plan changes for this guy. We don't even know his name. But now Boaz is next in line. So we're going to skip to verse 9. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Lemelach, Chilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow is my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ethret and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamor, born to Judah. Now, what's interesting about that blessing is Tamor was also a widow and a foreigner. It's fascinating. Go back and read that chapter in Genesis and see the similar storyline. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well-known in Israel, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons. That is a major compliment in that time. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. By trusting in the Lord, Ruth leaned into Naomi's life and story. Ruth didn't back away from the pain of the journey and what it would mean for her to love and serve well. And as a result, both Ruth and Naomi were comforted by God's presence, his provision, and his protection. So what does this mean for us? How can you and I expect to know Jesus as he would want to be known if our lives remain unscathed by trouble and grief? How can we hope to grasp anything of God's heart for a hurting world if we never weep for the brokenness of those around us? How can I reflect his image if I never share in these sufferings? The wounds and hurts we walk in, that we pray and want to go away, those are the very things that allow us to enter into other people's pain and testify to the heart of Christ and his love for the people that we know. It's all part of our stumbling together in our pursuit to love like him. And in, clo- in closing, I just want to read this passage from 2 Corinthians 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 
He comforts us in all of our afflictions, all of our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we receive from God. For just as our sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So in this Testify series every week, we we have an assignment for you to do. And so this week, what I want you to do is I want you to listen and lean in to someone else's story. Somebody you know that may be having a hard time, lean in and listen. Listen well. Ask questions. Show a keen compassion and empathy and understanding to want to know their story more. Ask God for a specific way you can love and serve them as a result of that conversation. Then just do it. That's going to require some vulnerability on your end. It's going to require faith. But one of the things the world around us throws Christians under a bus is this hypocrisy. Because sometimes we think, i got to have my life all together before I can be a good witness to others. What our story brings to the table in the people's lives around us is the pain and the suffering and our willing to lean into other people's and have really vulnerable conversations about that and like Ruth, step in and serve in very specific ways that can have an impact on their lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do, through your son, bring us great comfort that your presence and your provision and your protection over our life is there. And even when we don't see it, even when we don't grasp what's going going on in our life, you're present. And you give us great comfort. And because of that, you equip us to offer comfort for those around us that are hurting. I pray for each of us, Lord, that we would have faith to lean in and listen to a story of somebody around us who's hurting. And as a result of that conversation, that we would step out in faith in a way that could love and serve them. In your name we pray.